You are now, now listening now. to Renaissance, Renaissance. So, 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 so. What up, though, everybody? This is your boy, Kelly K. Fresh Frazier, and this is another episode of the Renaissance Soul Podcast. And just a reminder, the Renaissance Soul Podcast, originally a Detroit hip-hop website, started back in 2001 by yours truly, was a website centered around the discography of the legendary producer JD, a.k.a. J. Dilla, before I branched out to all Detroit hip-hop and music. In many cases, Renaissance Soul was the first place you heard many of Detroit music artists that you love today. With its revival as a podcast, each episode will focus on specific topics, an album, an era, a legacy, whatever, from Detroit music of all genres from the past and present from a historical perspective. For this episode, we're taking a deep dive into the debut studio album, Rotting Pinata, from the Detroit rock band Sponge with the band's vocalist Vinnie Dombrowski. Sponge is celebrating its 25th anniversary of Rotten Pinata with a big show at St. Andrews Hall in Detroit on Wednesday, November 27th. What a better time to reach out and get the dirt on the making of Rotten Pinata and its impact on 90s rock music with huge hits like Plowed and Molly. Released in August 1994, Rotten Pinata was a bit of a slow burn for Spudge, finally hitting the Billboard 200 in May 1995 with the success of Plowed. Rotten Pinata would eventually be certified gold by the RIAA and be Spudge's most successful album and still feel relevant 25 years later. Benny Dombrowski shares with us the track-by-track breakdown of his thoughts in the making of each song on Rotten Pinata along with the band's critical impact, or even lack thereof in some instances, during this time. While songs like Plowed and Molly were huge hits for the band, and were definitely defining of 1990s rock, comparisons to other bands from that time, like the Stone Temple Pilots, were very much noted in the media, but Dombrowski gives us his thoughts on how Sponge differed from them. And who was in Sponge for the recording of Rotten Pinata? Like I already said, you have Vinnie Dombrowski on the vocals. You have Michael Cross on guitar and backing vocals. You have Tim Cross on bass. You have Jim Mazzola on guitar and backing vocals. And Jimmy Paluzzi on drums and backing vocals. So without further ado, let's get into this interview about Rodden Pinata with Vinnie Dombrowski of Sponge. Congratulations, uh, 25 years of Rodding Pinata. Yeah, the time has flown by. <laughs> right. So, yeah, we're going to talk about, uh, for this episode, the, the 25th anniversary Rod and Pinata released in uh, 1999 on Work Records. Um, you know, to start things off, you know, when you kind of, you know, after all these years, you know, look back on that album, you know, what sort of comes to mind? You know, what really sticks out? about that record i think it's more so the uh era of music and the other groups uh kind of sticks out for me you know we made a record and um we certainly weren't looking to write radio songs that would 
be around 25 years later, 25 plus years later. That certainly wasn't the intent, but you know, I think we were part of a uh, a music movement uh, that that seemed to have endured, and uh, it's pretty amazing to be a part of that. You know, again, it's not like we sat down and we were listening to radio um, and, and going, "What kind of song should we write?" Um, you know, to sit there and go, "Well, cloud." sounded like a hit song at the time, or Molly sounded like a hit song. We really didn't have that uh, idea in mind. I think it was strong songs, but, um, you know, to have that music last uh, for the length of time it has lasted, it existed on radio, is it, a pretty amazing thing um, to still be part of that radio landscape and the soundtrack of what's on radio now and what was on radio then. It's a pretty amazing thing. This, you know, this would be the debut studio album for Sponge. You know, before you guys were writing and recording this record, you know, where were you at? Where were the other members of the the band at? You know, in just in your lives, you know, what were we, what were we just kind of doing before this record? Uh, just scraping it out in Detroit, being a band. Um there really was no other plan. There was nobody in the band that was like, you know, working some amazing day job or, you know, in the middle of a college education someplace, or, um, we were just scraping it out, being in a rock band, writing songs in Detroit. And, you know, really it's like a lot of folks, they've heard Detroit or what Detroit was or is, but Detroit was kind of a perfect place to, to be in a band, there were a ton of rock clubs that really demanded that you play your own music. You weren't playing cover songs. You had all these venues that had PAs by then. You could walk in with your stage gear and try out um, new music. And the other thing about Detroit, you know, you just spend $150 a month on a flat someplace. Um, and not in very good neighborhoods, but you could live on very little money, which was cool too. So, I mean, it was just like kind of the perfect environment. So that's kind of what we were doing. I guess we were just playing music and um, and, and scraping by. That was that was the environment. When did you start writing material for Rotting Pinata? What were some of the first songs that were written for it? Uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything early on that was written for the record. You know, there was a, a bunch of, like, um, I don't even know if these songs have made it to the Internet. Um, you know, like, they certainly weren't released uh, as B-sides. Um, you know, we had songs like, uh, i trying to remember, Down in Texas. I think we had a song called Down in Texas. Uh, it was a song called In the Name of God, Naja Hello. I mean, we, we had a bunch of tunes that... Uh, it was a ton of songs that we had written, um, but those songs never quite um, made the record. But early on, I think about some of the early B-sides, like Severed Hardy Moms or Welcome Home. Um, there were some things, I think, that we had played live that never really um, were released uh, to the masses as well. Like uh, I think I can recall a song called I Hate Myself. We used to play it, but I can't recall you know, having it 
released uh, to the masses. You know, Rodden Pinata would, you know, go on to, you know, be a successful record. But from the time that you started Sponge, you know, how long did it take to sort of get into a groove to where you guys knew what sound you wanted to be? You know, when did you find sort of your voice for this band? I mean, I think it was immediate. There was no, you know, overthinking or thinking about what the thing was going to sound like. It was just the way the group sounded in rehearsal. And we literally, you know, wrote Cloud uh, and recorded it the same day. So, you know, what version's on the record right now is the version we recorded that day. So there wasn't a lot of plotting, scheming, calculating uh, regarding the band sound or direction, it just kind of it was what it was at the time we started the group. What's the name or what's the story behind the name Sponge? Uh, it that that probably took more thinking than anything. <laughs> typically, didn't take much thinking, but the band name was like, well, what are we going to do for a name? And we we had it. Um, pretty much nailed down to two different names and it was a club we were going to play uh the, the club at the time was called the ritz and we rehearsed okay um behind the club which was a big detroit bar uh, in roseville michigan and um we rehearsed behind the bowling alley um, next to the collision shop at the club. So we would roll our gear around the back loading door of the club and loading the gear. And we had this discussion with the club owner prior to the gig. He's like, well, what, what name am I putting on the marquee? And we're like, well, we got two names we're kicking around. One is the electric cattle gods. And the other name was uh, sponge. And he says, I don't have enough letters for the electric cattle gods. So <laughs> I put sponge up here. And that's how it, that's how it rolled. Lots of cattle gods, yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. How did how did the band start? Uh, the band started. It was kind of pulled out of the ashes of a uh, group we had called Loudhouse, and uh, the singer uh, of that group, Loudhouse, uh, quit the band. Uh, Loudhouse released one record on Virgin, I believe, in 1991. And the band was dropped. We were on our way to making a second record when the singer at that time quit. And we attempted to try to find a singer for the group, but uh, um, we had no luck. But we wanted to keep writing and recording. So in the process of the writing and recording, I was singing on the demos, and things started to roll from there. At what point did you um, you know, really start getting serious about writing for the Rod and Pinata album? You know, What was some, sort of the first songs that you were able to you know, go in and record? I, I think we were serious from the get-go. Um, it, it's not like there was a point in time where we go, well, we're going to take it serious now and really <clears throat> crush this thing. Uh, it was pretty, pretty serious effort right from the get-go. But like I mentioned a minute ago regarding Plowed, um, I think that um, the process of uh, recording Plowed was a very similar process to the rest of the record. Um, you know, we would just uh, continue to uh, write and continue to record, and um, and, uh, and and on our own dime. Uh, by the way, you know, there was no like uh, we were um, recording, paying for the time ourselves when we recorded Plow. There was no record deal at the time. Right. You know, we pretty much had the record halfway completed 
uh, by the time uh, the uh, record label started uh, getting involved. So we were well on our way prior to having any kind of label signing. Okay. And you re- would record the the record at the loft in Saline, Michigan. You know, talk about the experience of recording there. Uh, it's a great environment to uh, record. Uh, it was the band, and, and of course Tim Padlin. Um, and it, it couldn't have been a better environment just to kind of um, pin together uh, songs. There was nothing that's nobody hanging around at that time to tell us what to do or how to do it. And it was uh, just kind of left to us to go. What do we like? What you know? What turns us on about what we're doing? And that that environment itself was, I think, key to us um, recording the rock and record. Well, you know, having sort of doing this all by yourselves, you know, DIY, putting it on your own dime, um, producing it yourself, you know. Looking back at that, you know, what did what did that add to the uh, to the making of this album? You know, what sort of you know, what what did it bring to this record that would end up being so successful? It's just a bunch of musicians getting together, going, "What do we want to do? What do we like? What turns us on?" I think that was key to the whole thing. Really, I mean, that that environment was perfect. And it should be perfect for any group or musician that wants to, uh, to, to write or record. And, and nothing could be better when, when you're thinking about what it is that you want to do. Uh, there's no limits. You can go in there and do exactly, write exactly what you want to write, say exactly what you want to say. So the freedom of it is just the, the key to it. During the time that you're... Uh... You're writing and recording Rod and Pinata. You know what else are you guys doing? You know how how many shows are you doing? How often are you doing shows? You know where are you doing shows? Constantly playing shows. You know, like I mentioned uh, uh, about the Ritz in, in Roseville, um, national bands would come through that venue. It was about 1,200 capacity clubs. So yeah, I remember we had the perfect it. place to. Pardon me. I remember. Yeah, I remember the Ritz. Yeah, the Ritz was a cool place. We can go to the Ritz anytime, uh, any any day of the week, and, and play a show. But we we're constantly playing out of town as well. Ann Arbor, Toledo, Indiana, Chicago was a big one. Uh, we would play the Avalon constantly. Um, they'd pay us, you know, a couple hundred bucks of that to come out and play in Chicago. And we jump in the van. Uh, we had a work van and a beer regal. We pile everybody in those vehicles and, and roll up to Chicago. So, you know, we were constantly uh, playing and writing and getting the recording done. During, you know, during this time before... It's not, it's not, it's not very sexy, by the way, you know what I mean? There was not a lot of money, so it was just a lot of intestinal fortitude and and a lot of, like, uh, you know, right. just uh, going out there and, and scraping by. Yeah, that was going to be my next question is, like, during that time, you know, how did you guys get by, you know, with, you know, not being a lot of money, you know, and, and just doing as many shows that you can, you know, how did you get by? You barely get by. I mean, you'd be surprised at what you can do without, uh, you know, driving crappy $150 cars, having uh, very little money for rent. 
our rehearsal space probably cost us more rent than my flat did, you know? <laughs> so you're just paying for your, you know, your bare expenses, being in a band, maybe working some time in a restaurant, you know, flipping bags and burgers. That That's about it. So there's nothing very sexy about what had to happen. And there was, you know, no, you know, big job uh, that anybody was involved in at the time either. You know what I mean? So everybody's kind of on the same program. Right. So, so yeah, just for, just for like in general, everybody in the band pretty much, you know, didn't have too many attachments outside of just the band itself. That's correct. Yep. That's correct. And before Sponge, you know, most of us had been in bands for many years prior to Sponge. So we understood what it takes and how to do it. So it's especially being in Detroit, you know what I mean? <sighs> Giving blood, pawn shops, you know? <laughs> At what point would the label interests start to, uh, you know, come you guys' way? Because you guys would eventually put out Rotting Pinata on the work group. So, like, when was label interest starting to sort of show itself towards Sponge? Oh man, I got I got to think sometime in like mid '93 or something like that. I I would think I can't really remember, but um, I would imagine yeah, mid '93. And how did you, how did it go about? You know, what's the story behind finally uh, signing with the work group to put out this record? Um, we had a manager that was affiliated with our production company uh, in Loud House. And uh, we had split from the production company and uh, the manager wanted to hang around. Um, so based on like everything that we had been doing, when we finally had some stuff, some songs, you know, we we're like, well, let's see what people think of this music. And, and uh, our manager at the time, uh, he was out in he had an office out in LA, um, was uh, taking the music around and getting some ears on it. So, and I can't recall exactly what was on those, uh, early demos I really don't know you know once you signed with uh, the work group to put out this record you know what came after that you know was there more uh, was there more songs that were written and recorded after that or was everything for this record already done I think we're still in a process of finishing the recording of the record I think Nina Manashi was like a uh, early song that we had done but I'm trying to recall perhaps songs like Maybe even Riding Pinata was a late comer to the record. Uh, Rain in my house might have been a later comer as well. Uh, Drowning, perhaps. Just trying to recall, but I think Drowning came a bit later. Okay, all right. The name of the record itself, Riding Pinata, where did that come from? We were talking to our sound man, friend, sound man. Cool Chris at the time, and Cool Chris uh, you know, is a legendary um, Detroit sound guy. You know, runs sound for all the great bands, punk bands that have come to Detroit over the years. And um, we we always said to ourselves, you know, no matter where we go, <clears throat> we want to try to sound the best we can. So nobody in the band got paid, but we paid our sound guy, Cool Chris, and uh, just because he would make sure we had everything we needed. Um, at a gig uh, to, to sound good. So talking to cool Chris about uh, Gigi Allen had just died 
<clears throat> and we always thought that I think Gigi threatened to like you know do himself in at a gig even you know but we thought that Gigi would have thought enough about it to put his body on tour after he died and uh, of course he never did that but the, the the words came up right yeah he would have been a riding pinata you know what I mean like they would have put his body on display at every gig um, so that's that's kind of how it came up cool Chris uh jokingly said that and we're like wow it sounds like a you know a cool title for something so i i, I believe it kind of morphed into a tune and morphed into the record title right for the for the album artwork for uh rod and pinata what's the story behind that and do you remember who did it uh some folks at sony uh put that together and we have a hidden track on the record called candy corn and it seemed to have resonated with some of the folks in the art department. That's one thing that, you know, we uh, would discuss with them regarding uh, some input with the, with the record. But, um, you know, as far as our uh, uh, direct input for uh, the, that, that particular cover, um, that was something that was generated more in-house over at uh, the work group. Let's, you know, get into the album itself. Um you know, go track by track and just, you know, if you have any stories about the the recording of it or what it means or anything, um, you know, I'd like you to share, you know, share that with us. Uh, the first track on the album is Penny Wheels. You know, what's the, you know, what's any good stories or thoughts about that um, song? Oh, your good live track. It's one of those tracks that kind of got to start in the studio. I'm sorry, in the rehearsal studio. Yeah. Yeah. That's where that tune got to start. Some of these songs, they get to start, and I'm walking in with a, you know, a track like Plowed, for example. Plowed and Molly, um, they kind of were pinned together with the chords and the, the lyrics um, relatively quick uh, by me. And then I would bring the, the, a song like Molly to the band and kind of finish it off in rehearsal. So all those nice, jangly, double guitar um, riffs that are so cool on that track. Uh, Joey and Mike uh, contributed uh, to, to that. So, um, you know, as far as the chords and the lyrics and the melody, that was me. And then the boys would finish it off in rehearsal with, uh, with those cool guitar arrangements. Okay, next is the the title track "Rod and Pinata." Um, you know, any thoughts about that that song? Well, the big back story behind that is the story I just told you about Gigi Allen. Yeah, the uh, rock singer performance artist, and that the title was kind of the catalyst for the the whole idea of the tune. Although the guitar part on that thing. I think we were kind of looking for more of a banjo part and the, the, the main guitar riff that Joe Mazzola wrote. Um, I think Joe wrote that. Maybe Joe and Mike wrote that, but uh, reminded us more of a banjo than a guitar. <laughs> nice. Uh, the next track on the album is Giants. You know, the song was one of those songs that were started, the whole idea uh, was started by a guitar riff. And I think Mike Cross, um, came up with that particular guitar riff. And when he started playing that riff, um, it was really easy to think about melody and words at that point. 
that could have been one of those riffs that we started in the rehearsal studio um, and, and, and put it all together in rehearsal based on that riff. Uh, the next track is uh, Nina Manasha. Um, any, you know, good stories about that? Yeah, I think once again, it's one of those tracks that it was a, just a killer guitar riff. Uh, one of those things that were in together in the studio. I remember um, recording that track in its entirety um, one late night at the loft. But the song was completed uh, arrangement-wise in the rehearsal studio. And the next track is Miles. You know, anything that sticks out about that record? Yeah, I think, I think once again, the guitar riff. Um, it's one of those guitar riffs that, that uh, Mike had put together. Mike um, even contributed um, some of the lyrics on that, um, on that track as well. You know, even even feels. You know, another guitar riff, riff and track. Um, Mike and Tim, the bass player, um, had some lyric contributions on that track. Yeah, yeah, but really started with the guitar riffs. Next up is Plowed, which would you know end up being such a monster of a tune. You know, it was one of those songs that, in my opinion, you know, defined. 90s rock it's like one of those songs you got to you you definitely think about when you think about you know 90s rock you know from the from the mid 90s you know you would it it found it's still being played on the radio it's it's in movies it's it was just such a monster of a tune you know what's you know what's your thoughts about you know just that song in general and then just the the success of it the success of the tune is beyond me. It's just one of those songs that uh, you're fortunate enough to be a part of that seems to resonate with people. You know, um, it, again, yeah, it's beyond me. I mean, I mean, some bands perhaps have a formula for this kind of thing. I do not, but you know, we've been lucky. We got a couple of those songs, Cloudy and the, the big one, Molly. Um, being another song that seems to have hung in there and resonated with people over the years. So, yeah, that's a monster trap for sure. You know, it's hung around a long time, and, and uh, to my amazement, by the way. <laughs> so, so at no point, at, you know, after making that record, you were like, you know, I think we got a hit on our hands with that. You know, even if it wasn't, you know, even even if you didn't think it would be the monster that it would become, you know, did you at all feel that like Plowed would be like? hit on our hands this might go some places well i mean number one you got to really understand what was on the radio at that time modern the modern rocks format was brand new um certainly people had begun to hear more about bands like the red hot chili peppers change addiction nirvana and uh those bands became uh just the uh, mainstays staples if you will at um that brand new modern rock format, which was, it was a baby at the time. You know what I mean? Rock radio on the other hand, it had been around for you know a long time. was still playing Led Zeppelin and ACDC and REO Speedwagon and uh, that stuff, um, which, you know, of course we're fans of that music. So Plow didn't sound anything like any of that stuff. So we were pretty amazed when, you know, it was becoming 
a uh, a hit, if you will, at radio. But I, I really didn't think much of the tune um, at the time. People at the shows before the song was um, released to radio, before the song was um, released on a record, people were like, "Yeah, that that's that's a big tune." Because we were playing at shows before the release. Right. Even at that time, uh, when you're saying it was resonating to, uh, with the crowd, you know, what do you feel like, you know, what, what was it about Plowed that you feel like resonated with, that, with the crowd even before it became a hit song? If I knew that, I'd write 10 more songs like Plowed today. <laughs> if I knew that, I'd bottle it and sell it. I, I don't know. I don't know. The jangly melody, the, the guitar riff. The, the, the chorus, I don't know. I don't, yeah, yeah, I feel like it, there was something about the, you know, that be, those beginning riffs, something about the, just the way the whole song, fl- um, like, like the flow of the song, there was just a, there was just a rhythm to it, I feel like, along with your vocals, that just was, like, infectious, dude. You just, you just had to, you had to get on board, man. So I understand why it's a, you know, it ended up being a hit. It was just, it just caught you. Yeah, man. I've been thinking about putting out uh, 10 songs that sound like Plowed on a record, you know, and call the record 10 songs that sound like Plowed. <laughs> they make, make a lot of money. <laughs> All right. The next song on uh, the record is Drowning. Um, any uh, thoughts about, you know, that song that come to mind? Um, once again, generated by the guitar riff. Yep. That, uh, that opening guitar riff that uh, Mike Cross wrote, that was uh, the catalyst for that tune. Big, big riff, you know, when you got a, a, a great guitar riff like that being played, I can't help but think of something to say or sing. Yeah, you've mentioned it many times, you know, going through these uh, these songs that, you know, a lot of it's generated just from a guitar riff. You know, what does what does sort of that collaboration between those guitar riffs and what you would bring to the table, you know, lyrically, you know, how does how does that process go? You know, what's your feelings about just that process? I don't know. When you got a good guitar riff, it doesn't take much for me to come up with a vocal thing. You know, and you know, too, the fellows would either present a riff at a rehearsal or they'd have cassette tapes filled up with uh, guitar ideas, you know what I mean? And I would just pick and choose what I would like to put together. But the opposite thing with the song like Cloud that was generated initially by the, the guitar uh, chords and the vocal melody, we recorded all of that, and then Mike played the opening riff, which was not even an opening riff at the time. That was the guitar solo. And we were like, wow, that sounds so good as the solo. Let's put it up at the top of the tune. So that song wasn't initially generated by a riff. That was a, that, I guess that was a uh, good idea to put it, you know, put it at the front of the, the, the record. Because that's, that's a great opening. Yeah. It's a great riff, yep. <laughs> All right, the next, uh, you know, the next song on the record is another single, another big hit for you guys, Molly. You know, what's uh, your you know thoughts about that record? Uh, that's one of those songs that was generated by the, uh, you know, me sitting around at home 
with a guitar and some paper writing down lyrics and taking it to the band, you know, and the uh, those cool jangly guitar lines that are in that tune um, came in the rehearsal process. And I think that that's kind of what made the band different, you know. People sit and go, well, you know, here's another Stone Temple Pilots or um, Pearl Jam or that kind of crap. And I'm just like, well, I think the guitar arrangements were really like very well thought out and it made the like i can't think of another i mean pearl jam had a couple of guitar players but didn't utilize guitars the way sponge did those guitar arrangements were really clever they were they were smart and well done so i look at that and i go i I go that's i think what made the group different yeah and i'm glad you brought that up because uh when i was doing my research uh, there, you know, I would see a few reviews that still exist on the on the net about uh, Sponge and Ron Pinata, and they would always, you know, bring in the you do the you know the obvious comparisons to the other bands, whereas you know, like you know, you would get lumped in with the Stone Temple Pilots and Pearl Jams and stuff like that, you know. But at the same time, they would uh, almost uh, like still praise the band while. It, it was almost like kind of like a, a you know, side-eyed, you know, sideways sort of compliment. You know, what were sort of your uh, your thoughts about, you know, being a band at that time with these other bands like Stone Temple Pilots and Pearl Jam? I never thought that there was any valid comparison, you know. I mean, sonically speaking, when Stone Temple Pilots came out, I was like, and they got a lot of criticism for it because, there's just blatant criticism uh, on Saturday Night Live. Even back then, they would do the weekend updates and and, um, and openly criticize that uh, the sonic similarities. And I think it was maybe in the voice of uh, some of the early Stone Temple Pilots songs that uh, made people think of Eddie Vedder. I think so. I think that may have been the comparison then, but. You know, I think about the, the just the sonic style of the groups. I just don't see the sonic, obvious sonic similarity uh, between uh, the the groups. So, you know, in retrospect, you know, people are going to say and think whatever they want. But at the time, I didn't see any kind of serious comparison at all. That's why I felt good about doing what we did. Because, you know, frankly, Stone Temple Pilots, you know, they, they had a, a number of... Uh, mid-tempo rock tunes and sponge came from more of a punk rock um uh angle on the thing with songs like molly and roddy pinata and cloud they weren't doing anything like that you know what i mean right. and neither was pearl jam for that matter nor do they need to do that kind of thing you know the sponge <laughs> no. was, you know i felt more in line with bands like you know green day or the goo goo dolls you know what i mean than than, than um stone temple pilots right the next uh, re- the next song on the record is Fields. You know, you know anything stick out about the making of that? Uh, guitar riff. You know, yep, guitar riff. And I had mentioned earlier about the the lyrical contribution that um, uh, Mike and I believe Tim, his brother, um, made to that. Because the song was a tip of a hat to a friend that had passed away, and um, they they wanted to kind of memorialize their friend via that song, and that's how we kind of angle the lyric and and develop the song based on that and the next song is raining you know anything stick out about that 
Yeah, I mean, again, a guitar driven, guitar riff driven song. Um, lyric is about as honest as it could get, you know, living in my upper flat with a hole in the roof. It was fucking raining in my house. You know what I mean? So <laughs> it's, 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 it's a metaphor at that point, but I mean, it's like, that's where you get a song idea from. It's literally raining in my house. There's also a hidden track called Candy Corn that you uh, mentioned before when we were talking about the album arts. You know, what's the story behind that? Yep. Um, the song initially um, came to the group towards the end of the recording process for Rod and Mike brought the, uh, the guitar riff uh, to the studio and we developed the song. Uh, well, not the song, but the, the arrangement with the guitars and we added some drums. And um, I think it was a song at the time, Mike um, gave the title, The Leaves Are Turning Brown. And um, we were talking about how we developed that into a song. You know, how do we develop The Leaves Are Turning Brown? Um, but we were like, let's slow the tape down. And, and we did. We took that track and slowed the tape way down, and it really took on a whole cool kind of new life. And it really, you know, turned us on. And I'm like, immediately, I, I, I think it was around, it, it must have been around fall, because we we're talking about the leaves are turning brown and, and candy corn, and, and uh, immediately it was this candy corn idea. So it turned into candy corn with this huge kind of like echoey Cocteau twins, uh, you know, vocal, and, and we just rolled from there. Obviously not a song that's uh, a sponge track or something that would go on the record and stand up with the rest of the tunes, but that's why we used it as a hidden track. Nice. You know, Ryan Pinata would, you know, go on to be certified gold by the RIAA. And, but even though it was released in August of 2009, uh, I mean, 1994, you know, it didn't enter the, the Billboard 200 until May of uh, 1995 after the success of Plowed. With, uh, you know, and that's, you know, that back then, that that wasn't a rare thing. You know, albums would have a slow burn like that. But, you know, looking back at the, you know, the success from the time that it, you know, it was released in 94 to when it actually did, you know, hit the Billboard charts, you know, sort of, you know, what's your thoughts and feelings about the about that time? Well, you're right. It was a slow burn. It took a lot of work. By a lot of people the band included being out there constantly touring constantly going to radio stations constantly going to record stores to uh, perform and uh, folks over at the label bust their ass at the work group to make that record happen uh, it was a collective army of people um, believing in a project to make the whole damn thing work not to mention the, the, the booking agent, management, booking agent, everybody working hard to make that happen. And it's an unknown band, you know, and to develop an unknown group like that takes a lot of energy, money, and time. And, of course, number one, the song. you got to have the song. Apparently we had the song. So it, it just took a lot of work, and it was a slow burn. Everybody was patient, and everybody busted their ass, so it was cool. This would be a time when you're – it was a little after the transition that rock would have from, you know, the hair bands of the eighties, the eighties style. Um, you, you would go into this, the grunge, the alternative rock, 
of the 90s. Um, like you mentioned, the radio that would, you know, eventually embrace you guys would be, it, you know, was a new thing, you know, still in its infancy. You know, why do you feel like Sponge and with this Rod and Pinata album that, you know, you were able to, you know, find success with it? And, you know, why did the label continue to be behind you guys, you know, even though you guys are an unknown band? Well, everybody's got to be an unknown band at some point, you know. <laughs> Zeppelin was an unknown band at, at one point. Kiss was an unknown band. I think some folks saw value in the uh, the strength of the music. And, you know, that, 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 that record made money. That record recouped pretty quick, which is uh, a unheard of thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of new bands, it's rare that, a band would get signed, number one. It's rare a band would get signed and release a record. It's rare that a band would get signed, release a record, and the label actually works the record. It's even rarer that a label signs a band, releases a record, works the record, and recoups. So it's it's really, it, again, it's a lot of work by a lot of people, but you got to give credit where credit's due. There, tip of the hat. But we had the right song or songs to help make that happen. Ballpark figure. You know, how much did it make to? How much did it take to make this record that you were able to recoup it? I don't have a clue. <laughs> you would have to call somebody over at the Sony in the accounting department and start to pin together all the numbers regarding what the overhead for the record was. Which you know, you're talking a major label army of people at 550 Madison Avenue at the time and, and, and talk about dollars in 1994 dollars what they would spend on a record and then go well what's it going to take to recoup that so certainly a pile of cash <laughs> outside of like all the major label stuff you know what you know do you do you know how much it, it you know it took just to record the album because like you said a lot of it you guys you know you know, came out of your own pocket. Record the record. Shit, that record was probably recorded for under ten grand <laughs> back back then. Right. Probably it, cost more to master the record. Record <laughs> 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 it. You're probably paying, you know, just minimal dollars to back then, you know. And shortly, you know, shortly after the the album would come out, and. Um, Plowed would be featured in Empire Records, and that's a song that really sticks out to me, you know, from that movie. A lot of people love that movie. Um, what was sort of your thoughts about it being a part of the part of that film? Um, at the time, I didn't think too much of it, you know, because that wasn't my bag, you know, like songs and movies, like it, it's so popular today, you know. And, and uh, back then, though, I didn't see a lot of bands doing it. I mean, Pearl Jam did it, you know. But uh, it, it wasn't my, on my radar. It wasn't my concern. All I wanted to do was write songs and record music. I didn't even want to necessarily have to be on the road, but that's part of the whole thing of being in the band, you know. My interest was just recording and, and writing songs. You know, when you, uh, when you kind of look back on Rod and Pinata, you know, after, after its release, its success, you know, 25 years later, you know, after everything we've just talked about, you know, what really sticks out in your mind about, 
you know, what it, what it meant for you guys and for rock and roll at that time? To me, it's more important what it meant to rock and roll, you know, it, it, and not what it, like it being Sponge or Cloud, it being part of a important time in music. And to be part of an important time in music to me was the, I me mean, personally, that's the big thing, but just to be part of a lot of groups that were doing something differently than what was going on in the 80s. Specifically hair, you know, hair rock or hair metal, that LA thing. And we weren't doing that, that thing that way. And um, I think there was just a lot of music that's going to be around for a long, long time that came out of that era. And I um, wouldn't have thought of it at the time, but again, glad to be part of that. How do you feel like Rod and Pinata? influence or impacted the, the 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 Detroit rock music scene at that time and even 25 I, years I, later I don't I don't it did it didn't influence at all it didn't at all because on the heels of our second record um, the white stripes the garage rock thing was coming out I think people had enough of like you know grunge rock post grunge rock they were moving on to something already so I don't think funds influenced any any of the memorable groups that have come out of Detroit, uh, uh, you know, the White Stripes being one of those groups that they did a very different thing as well. They should have done something very different because anybody following in our footsteps at that time, it would have been too late. You know, you got to do your own thing and you got to do it in a timely way. So yeah, I'm glad we didn't influence uh, anybody. They've they been wasting their time. Right. But, you know, just in sort of like the the annals of, you know, Detroit rock history, you know, what do you, you know, what do you feel like this, where do you feel like this record, Rod and Pinata, fits in it all? Because uh, it looks like, you know, it, just it, like... It, it, fits all, it, it fits into a hole of the 90s, <laughs> you know, like the Romantics were part of what was going on in the 80s. There was not a lot of, you know, action as far as bands getting signed, you know, Rhythm Corps, out of Detroit got signed, the Romantics got signed, the Rockets were signed. There were a bunch of bands trying to do the hair metal thing, but by by the time, you know, that thing was coming to a screeching halt, um, you know, there were bands like Big Chief, you know, that were doing some things. Um, you know, Corey Clark was doing some stuff, you know, but I think that Sponge will be remembered for, like, you know, what happened in the 90s out of Detroit, you know, I would I would think, or a part of what was going on in the 90s in Detroit, you know. There's a lot of great groups, man, you know. A, you know, a lot of great groups, man, that, that, that just, you know, a lot of people don't know about that they've come out. You know, I mean, the Suicide Machines had, had their own day in the sun, too, man. They were a great group. But guys like John Brandon, Negative Approach, you just go... Look at look at what he means to the rock music world. It's just a phenomenal, you know, unthinkable thing. You go, so this guy from Detroit influencing the world with his voice. Brandon did that. You know, I just go, God bless him. But there's this small part of 90s rock history that Sponge can be a part of. I go, God, God bless us. You know, and you look back in the 80s, 
you know, Seduce got signed to IRS, and I know there's bands that I'm probably forgetting and I'm, I'm not mentioning, but, you know, Sponge had that time in the 90s. It was kind of our minute for a couple of years. And, you know, looking back to having your minutes, you know, how does how does that feel in comparison to the, you know, the rest of the the band's career? You know, you guys would continue to put out, you know, records every few years, you know, but, you know, having that minute in the sun, you know, you know, what's your thoughts about that? You get into a bunch of clubs for free for a while, you know what I mean? Which is nice. Oh, the guys from Spongebob, let them in. That's cool, you know, that's nice. But to me, the mission has always been to write songs and record. That's it. Not a smart guy. I go, I'm going to continue to do that thing that got us started in the first place. Nobody knows me for any other thing. I mean, people go, well, Vinny plays drums. Well, sure, I play drums. I play guitar, too. But, you know, the, the point I'm making here is, what do they know me from? A song called Plow. That's it. And why do they know me from that song? Because I wrote that song. Other than that, why would they know me? They don't, you know, on, even on a national level, people know me because of that thing. I go, that's cool. So my minute in the sun, you know, was uh, cool here in Detroit, but I feel I got a lot of minutes in, in, in the sun, provided I keep making records and, and write songs and record. And how did, you know, how did you go, you know, go about continuing to put out records, you know, every few years so often, you know, you know, after having your debut be a success, you know, what, you know, was that something you thought about or it just didn't really come to mind? You just didn't care. You just wanted to continue to uh, put out records, even if it never, you know, reached the success of that first record, Rod and Pinata. Again, it's all I care about. It's all I do. I'm not concerned about what it's going to cost or what the cost is. I'm going to do what I'm supposed to be doing, which is recording and putting out records, you know, recording, writing songs. That's it. It's about as simple as that. And I go, you know what? I did it back then. I'll keep doing it now. It's been a long time since, you know, we recorded Rodney Pinata and I'm still doing it. So I go, what's my motivation? Writing and recording. And it doesn't matter if we got a major label or any label at all. I can still do it. So, right. And before we get out of here, that's you know, you know, let's talk about what's going on with Sponge these days. You know, I hear that you guys are going to go on a national tour with the Nixons in December. You have a new label deal. You, I hear, and then we're gonna you're going to be doing a big uh, show at um, Thanksgiving Eve at St Andrews Hall for the 25th anniversary of Rod and Pinata. You know, um, t tell us what, uh, what you're all, you know, what you're working on. Uh, give us more information about all that news. Well, you said it. You summed it up. Yeah, <laughs> we'll be on the road with him in December, uh, starting on December 3rd, I believe. And uh, we got the show at St. Andrews Hall with Crud, um, Solid Frog, and Voyager on uh, November 27th. And uh, we're always releasing, recording music. So there'll be some new stuff coming out as well. So we're excited. What can, uh, what can we expect from the, the show at St. Andrews? Well, Krug will be on that bill. Solid Frog. 
and uh, Voyager, and uh, we're partnering up with the Pope Francis Center as our charity element for the for the night as well. And the Pope Francis Center uh, is in downtown Detroit, and uh, they uh, do the wonderful work that they do down there of giving counseling and direction to folks that um, are addicted and uh, and folks that have no address, uh, essentially some folks that are homeless. So they help the homeless and addicted down there, challenged folks, and, and uh, they do a wonderful job at it. We're happy to, during the holiday, uh, be a part of uh, shedding some light on what they do and trying to raise some money for them. So <clears throat> is, uh, is part of the ticket sales going to go to them, or what's the, what's the deal with that? Yeah, 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 part, part of the sales up. Uh, Part of a uh, portion of ticket proceeds go to the Pope Francis Center, and we're also going to be doing some auction work. And uh, people can bring in items like uh, socks and underwear, which they need. Uh, they can bring those uh, and drop them off. They need socks and underwear like crazy in yeah. the wintertime for uh, the needy at the Pope Francis Center. Yeah, that's a, that's a need that. Uh always is always needed uh people always bring other stuff but for the most part socks and underwear is something that is severely needed at any time they're always in short shortage of that in comparison to other things that people donate right on yep and you know you're um you're a part of the band uh crud also uh it you know as as it was put to me it's Vinny's alter ego industrial band you know talk more about crud People should go out and get the records, you know. Crud's got two records out, Devil at the Wheel uh, and Crud on Monster Island. Uh, David Black from Seduce plays guitar in the band. Dana Forrester and her husband James, uh, they play in Dead and Five. Uh, they cover bass and drums in the band. And, of course, the lovely Danielle Arsenal uh, is sharing vocals with me in that band, as she has for nearly 20 years. Nice. So it's going to be a fun time uh, at St. Andrews and Thanksgiving Eve. And do you have any more information about, you know, new sponge music coming out? Uh, it could be something coming out uh, here shortly in November. We have a song called Uber and a Fifth of Tequila that uh, we wrote. Uh, it's not quite uh, textbook sponge music, but we wrote it for a pub crawl thing that we usually do and a uh, label decided to, they love the song so much they want to work at the radio. So that looks like it's coming up here in the fall pretty soon. <laughs> nice, nice. You know, just you know, just to close out, you know, this interview and thank you for you know talking Rod and Pinata for me for the past hour. And what you know, what I would like to just close out with is that you know this you know Rod and Pinata was a very you know successful record had you know a huge song with Plowed. And like you said, it kind of had this, it was a part of this, this little hole in Detroit music history, you know, things before it and things after it would be, you know, so much, you know, so much different, but you guys were able to, you know, pop out and have the success with this record, you know, when, you know, what's your final thoughts about Rod and Pinata in regards to just what it is and what it's meant? in the world of rock and roll? Well, 
you know, I'm always humbled about what the record has done. Uh, if, if we seem to have uh, been a part of a listener, listener's uh, day, moment, uh, somewhere to have given music to somebody and they spend their time to listen to our music uh, somewhere on this planet, that's a pretty heavy thing. And uh, even if they do it once, and they've done it millions of times, they, they listen, they uh, decide to sponge as part of their musical landscape and just to be part of rock and roll, uh, the rock and roll landscape in some small way, to me, uh, I just, uh, I, I, am, I am thrilled about, I always will be thrilled about, but uh, you know, at the end of the day, I just want to write songs and record and uh, keep, try to keep doing that. Well, that sounds awesome, my friend. Uh, before we get out of here, where can people go online to get more information about, you know, what you, what you're up to, what Sponge is up to, anything that you want to, anything else you want to promote? SpongeTheBand.com is our website, or they can go to Facebook forward slash Sponge Rocks. All right, great, my friend. It was uh, it was awesome to talk with you, get all the information about uh, Rod Pinata, and dude, thank you again for uh, doing this interview with me. Good to talk to you, Kelly. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to the Renaissance Soul Podcast, hosted and produced by myself, Kelly K. Fresh Fraser, empowered by Anchor at Anchor.fm/RenaissanceSoul. Renaissance Soul theme music provided by Steve O. You can find more of his productions at. I am steveo.bandcamp.com and that's E-Y-E-A-M-S-T-E-V-E-O.bandcamp.com. Renaissance Soul is available on all streaming platforms. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. If you want to support Renaissance Soul, please consider pledging via Patreon at patreon.com slash fresh the word. Follow Renaissance Soul on social media on Instagram at Podcast and on Twitter at Pod. And join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash freshtheword. And for more information on Renaissance Soul, visit freshthepodcast.com. Thank you for listening and your support. Goodbye and good night. Renaissance Soul.